I think I'm on. Patty is not here today. So that's that's too bad. But I think I'm on. I think everything's working. I don't have her here to look over my shoulder to make sure about that. But I think we're good. You know, I some of you know that Patty's sister, Joan's husband, went into memory care about... 10 days ago, something like that, 12 days ago. And Joan flew then a few days after that here. She got here last Monday, and she's been here for a week. And then she and Patty flew to Pensacola um, a couple of hours ago so that Patty could help Joan sort out some things. And then Patty's going to come back here in a few days. But right now, Patty is not here. That's not a good thing, but, um, you know, we will carry on. So, the I don't have any announcements or anything. The only big thing is the fact that I think we'll probably finish up Mark's Gospel today. And as we talked about last week, I think we ought to go into the Book of Esther next, starting next Monday. It's a, it'll be a change of pace. It's a, such a good story. Um, and... Um, and it'll give take us into sort of a different time and place because it's set in ancient Persia. Ancient Persia. It's the only book of the Bible in which the word God does not appear. And that's a drinking in and of itself, isn't it? So it it's um there's a whole Jewish holiday called Purim that is built around the story of Esther and Mordecai. And so I think it'll be a, a good thing. It's not a terribly long book, but it's it it's real it's real interesting, and then we'll see where we go after that. So that's my plan right now. So, let's see. Today we are returning to Mark. We're going to start at um, Mark 42. That is the beginning of the section on Jesus' burial. Okay, because... Um, he has, in our reading in the last couple of weeks, he has been crucified and he has died. His clothes have been divided up, you know, among the soldiers after they threw lots and all the mocking, all of the humiliation, all of that stuff has now really come to an end because he has died on that cross. And I, I do think it's important to understand that even that death, which is really a, 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 a release, a relief, is a death of suffocation. It's not what you think it is in most cases. In most cases, it was a death of suffocation. Now, Jesus had lost a lot of blood. He died much more quickly than crucifixion victims were in, uh, intended to have died. But the usual crucifixion death was of suffocation to where the the condemned couldn't push themselves up on the cross anymore to breathe just out of their own weakness. And then um, <coughs> sometimes Roman soldiers would come along if there was some reason that they needed the crucifying crucified person to die more quickly, they would come along and break their legs in order to make sure that they die more quickly because if your legs are broken, you're not going to be so able to push yourself up on the cross in order to be 
in order to take a breath. But now, but now Jesus has has passed. He has died. And so we will do this final section in chapter 15, and then we will go into chapter 16, which is Mark's um, resurrection story. Okay? And if you have any questions or things, I invite you to to write them down. I, I can see the comments here, um, just like Patty could. Not as well as Patty could, and I can't respond to you, practically speaking, but I can... I can see them. So let me get myself set up just, just a bit. I'm going to move the keyboard out of the way. Okay, so we're in verse 42. It was preparation day, and then Mark explains it. That was the day before the Sabbath. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. So the Friday of the trial, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, all of that is on Friday leading up to the Sabbath, which begins at sundown on Friday and will continue until sundown on Saturday. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, this is a remarkable statement, remarkable statement. Um, uh, being Jewish, Joseph knows that the body needs to be attended to before sundown because for the Jews, nobody touched, not even the women, touched, could, touched a, uh, a dead body on the Sabbath. So Joseph knows that it needs to be taken care of. Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a prominent man. There were only 70, um, and at times fewer than that, members of the Sanhedrin. So he is um, a, 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 probably a wealthy man, and clearly he has embraced Jesus. I think that's what that who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God implies that he was a Jew who was who was committing to the truth of what Jesus... Remember, I mean, you didn't hear it probably. Some of you did. My sermon yesterday, the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So, so Joseph is committed to that, I think. Now, he is in all four Gospels. All four Gospels contain his name, Joseph of Arimathea. And that's remarkable because... If you were making this story up, you would not include such a prominent and public person. But he is not just in one of the Gospels, he is in all four Gospels, because I think his involvement is, is seen by the Gospel writers as lending credence to this remarkable tale that will come. I mean, the crucifixion is horrible, but it's not remarkable. The Romans did it a lot. This, the, what will come, which is the empty tomb and resurrection. Okay? So, so Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly. Um, it takes, it does take boldness before the Roman governor, especially if you've been one of the Jewish leaders, because they have tangled with Pilate a lot. But he is going to step up. Uh, Pilate had condemned this man, and he goes boldly to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. 
um, because the body is basically under the control of the execution squad, right? The Roman soldiers who are, who are there. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Yeah, see, uh, it's only been a few hours. And crucified victims of the Romans were not supposed to die quickly. They were supposed to linger for a day, two days, three days, in order to be a public spectacle of what happens to those who stand up to the power of Rome. And so Pilate is surprised. And so I think the, the, the you know, the best, the most sensible explanation is that the Roman squad who flogged and beat Jesus simply went too far. They went too far. He had too much blood loss. Um, and he wasn't in a condition to be able to survive for a day or two days or three days crucified on this cross. I mean, another piece of that is the fact that he had to have help, help to carry the cross piece. Now, I think I would probably need it if I was in full health. But, yeah, there's another piece. Jesus is, Jesus has suffered mightily before he ever gets to the cross. Before he ever gets to the cross. So Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Um, summoning the centurion, that would be the person who said, if you look a few verses back, surely this man was the son of God. He is the execution. He was in charge of the execution squad, the death squad, as it were. So Pilate summons that soldier, the man in charge. He asked him if Jesus had already died because Pilate's just kind of skeptical about it. So what would he think might be happening? He might be thinking that Pilate's going to contrive, Joseph of Arimathea's going to try to convince Pilate that Jesus has died when he hasn't. And so that the body will be given to him, but he can then take Jesus away and bring, kind of, kind of resuscitate him, revive him, you know, give him water and rest and sort of bring him back. So Pilate wants to know from the leader of the execution squad, did they get their job done? Huh. If I'm the centurion, it's kind of an insult. I mean, they knew how to do this. He knew what his job was. But the governor is asking, He's going to respond um, when he learned, verse 45, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Jer Joseph. Not physically. He gave Joseph the right to go to the cross with whomever Joseph would like, right? And, and take control of Jesus' body. It's, it's a, it's, it's, why, why does Joseph do it? Out of a devotion? Does he think that Jesus is about to be resurrected in two days? I'm sure not. Um, has Jesus seemingly died? A crucified would-be Messiah? Yeah. But Joseph is devoted to him. And Joseph himself doesn't have anything to fear from the Romans. He's never been seen as part of the rebel squad. He's part of the Sanhedrin. These were the 
men who brought Jesus to Pilate in the first place. So um, the women are around the cross, and now Joseph has been given control over Jesus's body. Yeah, and the Hesses note that the centurion is the main character in the movie Risen that came out a few years few years ago. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. I think it's good. Um, uh, but yes, um, Joseph Fiennes plays, plays the centurion. I think in the movie The Robe, Richard Burton is the centurion, if I remember. Back about 60 years ago, maybe, or more, um, to when I read the book and saw the movie. Because it's that's it's just the story of the centurion is remarkable. He's in charge of the death squad, and yet he is the first one in Mark's gospel to declare that indeed Jesus is the Son of God. Without getting into all the stuff that he might have meant by that, doesn't matter. He's in the story, and now he has to come before Pilate and said yes, and say yes, this man is dead, dead and quite dead. There are, have been over the years, those who cannot accept the truth of the empty tomb or the resurrection who want to say that, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just like swooned. He just like passed out from blood loss or something. And they took him down and took him somewhere and kind of brought him back to life. The, prob the biggest problem with that is one, it's not attested to anywhere. But even bigger than that, you're assuming that the Roman squad doesn't know what they're doing. Of course they do. That's why, not in this account, I don't think, um, the spear is thrust into Jesus' side. Why do they do that? It's to make sure. To make sure, to make sure, to make sure. They know what their job is. And... Um, Neither Jesus nor the man on the right or the man on the left of Jesus could survive this. It would just be dereliction of duty on the part of the Roman um, soldiers. So he, Jesus is indeed dead, and um, that that's a pretty well-discarded theory about what happened to Jesus. The best is simply that the tomb was empty indeed and Jesus was resurrected. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the actual truth of it. But verse 46. So, Joseph, who now has is responsible for the body, he bought, purchased some linen cloth to wrap the body, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance to the tomb. Now, he didn't do this alone. It would be too big a task. This, I mean, I don't know if you ever tried to pick up somebody who passed out or whatever. That This would take others. Probably some of the women. Maybe the young disciple, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably young John, who was there. Um maybe some others, but they will lovingly and devotionally take Jesus' body down, lay it out, wrap it up, then carry it and put it into this tomb. 
Alright, so I brought a few photos and things so I could talk about burial for a minute. Let me see. Okay. I've done this before, but I, I think I have people on here who haven't been through this. Because if you think of a burial as being six feet under the ground, none of this makes, is, makes too much sense. Okay? So here's that map again, the arrow pointing to Golgotha. Everything happens there. The crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, they all happen in the same very small space right there. There's a church over it now, and you it's, it's a relatively few steps to get from the stone of crucifixion to the stone where of an uh, anointment where Jesus was laid out, and then around in the church, around the corner, to where the sepulcher is, uh, signifying, marking the place of the tomb. It's all They're all very close together, which makes sense because these are, these are not easy tasks to do. So this is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, this is a photograph taken from the top of the Lutheran Tower, which is, if you're ever there, that's a good, it's, you have to climb up to the top of the tower, but it's a good place to get a great view of Jerusalem. And this double-domed, and there's other portions of a church, sits over, sits over Golgotha. Okay? It sits over that place the uh, arrow's pointing to. It sits over the spot in the quarry that I've talked about for the last two or three weeks. And when Constantine's mother, Helena, came to town, they said, where, they, she asked, where was Jesus crucified? They pointed to this place, just outside the city walls, beside the roads. The Lutheran Tower has a really good set of drawings and maps to help you see how this was, um, if you're ever there. So, this quarried area being limestone is strewn with little caves and openings. It would be an easy thing for a family, for a family to to take part of it and create a family tomb. Now these tombs were in essence caves because they didn't bury like you and I, like we bury people today. We either cremate them or we put the body in a casket and put the casket into the ground. That's not it for them. That isn't what they did. Instead, they would take the body, in this case, Jesus' body, they took him down from the cross, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and then they carried him into a tomb. Might have been like this. Maybe a slab cut out of the wall. Maybe a slab cut out of the floor where it's kind of raised up out of the floor around it. But picture just this body, kind of like, yeah, kind of like a mummy right? Laying there. And they did this because when sufficient time had passed, they would come back and collect the bones and put the bones into a bone box. The, the fancy name is an ossuary, but a bone box. This is, this box was found about uh, 30 years ago now. It's the bone box of Caiaphas. How do we know? Well, first of all, it's fancy. Secondly, his name's carved at the end. Third, it is from the right time. Safe bet. Most people <laughs> didn't have bone boxes like this. The families would just have these simple limestone slab boxes, and the box was long enough 
to fit the longest bone of the human body, which I think is a thigh bone that's connected to the knee bone and the hip bone. And then the other bones would be piled in there with the skull. I know it's all very weird, but then they would just put the bone boxes away. And there would be in these tombs like storage chambers where the bone boxes could accumulate and they would scribble on the end of it, scratch onto the end of it, the name of the person whose, whose bones those were. And all this process would take at least a year. The body would lie there and then they would, then they would, then they would come back to collect it. And, and the flesh would have um, dried up and all that you'd have left were the bones and off you go. So it did create an issue though, okay? And how do you keep animals in particular out of tombs? And the way they did it is with these round stones. So they would build, this is real fancy. This is the Herod family tomb. So it's got a real fancy uh, round stone in it. Others would be more like a round stone with just a little gutter in front that would hold it so they can roll it. Sometimes the doorway is, is, you know, real short doorway. You'd have to bend way over to get in, which makes it easier, at least, because the stone doesn't have to be quite as big. It's what Lazarus was behind when Jesus goes and they're going to go in to get Lazarus. He orders Lazarus to come out. Somebody's got to roll the stone out of the way if Lazarus is going to come out of the tomb. So this is what they did. Did it from... I've read maybe a hundred years before Jesus to maybe a hundred years after Jesus. And uh, most think that it was a way of enacting the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead. The importance of the material body and that one day, one day God would raise all of the dead and I guess that guess that might be so. They weren't the only ones who practiced this. If you if you travel around the the Eastern Mediterranean, you'll see museums where there's some Greek ossuaries and others. But the Jews at the, at Jesus's time were were quite active doing it. So that's what Joseph has done now with the and Joseph and the others. They collect Jesus's body. They wrap it in the linen cloth that Joseph purchased, and they lay it on this slab in the tomb after rolling the stone away. And then when they leave, they roll the stone back. Now there are almost certainly more than one slab because there might be bodies in various states of, of you know, decomposition inside the tomb. So Joseph though, it, We don't get, it. Mark is very, doesn't give us as much information as some of the others do. That's kind of been all the case all the way through Mark. But this tomb is a new tomb. It's a family tomb of Joseph, something that he has set up for his family, and he's going to use it for Jesus. You see, you wanted to preach about that, you could preach about that. Well, Joseph and Jesus are of one family now, right? I'm preaching about that next Saturday night in in the Hesse Chapel at the 530 service. They are of one family now. They are they are brothers. Um, and so Jesus, in 
the other Gospels, we learn that Jesus' body is the first to go into this tomb. But the important thing is that, that it's there. Um, they would come and array the body with some, uh, <coughs> some, some very uh, aromatic spices and things to help deal with the smell. You know, you can only cover it up, I guess. Um, but that's what they did. And we know from another gospel that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the Pharisee together brought a a, enough pounds of that kind of stuff for a king, which is a theological point, to anoint Jesus Jesus's body. Now, in verse 47, Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, probably not Mary's mother, but, you know, I'm not prepared to argue that to the death or anything. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So, that's going to be important because they are going to come back on Sunday morning after the Sabbath is over to finish tending to the body. So evidently, um, because they come back so early on the Sunday, it means that this was done a little bit hurriedly. Remember, they have to get it all done before sundown. So they're doing it maybe a little bit hurriedly. There's still some work to be done. Um, they wanted this is Jesus. They're devoted to him. And this is his body. And so they're going to come back after the Sabbath is over to finish that work. And of course it is the women who are going to come back because tending to, to dead bodies and stuff was women's work. That's just, 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 just the facts. So that's where it's left on Friday evening on the Sabbath. And the next piece of this will be on Sunday morning. So if you have any questions or things right now, um, please, please write them, to, you know, type it in or something. I'll take a drink of water here for a second, and then we're going to go on to chapter 16. You know, it's very, t it's, it's, and of course, we all do this. We all take the various gospel accounts and we add them all together, right, to try to get as full a picture as we can. But like I said, you know, I respect that Mark tells this sparse tale. In some ways, that's very powerful. He's, he's not there to be a reporter and provide every bit of detail we want, might want. What he wants to tell you is that Jesus was crucified and he was died and he was buried. Just like we affirm in the Apostles' Creed every Sunday morning at St. Andrew. So, Linda says we're confused. Was one of the Marys Jesus' mother? I do not think so, no. No, this is Mary Magdalene and another Mary, the mother of Joseph. The problem, Linda, is this. There were so many Marys. It was far and away the most popular name for a woman. And um, so in the New Testament, it gets confusing from time to time, but I think she would be identified as Mary, Jesus's mother, if it, that's who she actually was, okay? 
I'm just saying I'm unwilling to be 100% sure about much when it comes to the Marys because they do get they do get confusing. And it's just because nobody needed a lot of names. Nobody traveled very far. Nobody was challenged about anything. Nobody had driver's licenses or anything like that. So, yeah. But this is Mary, mother of Joseph. Well, what Joseph is that? I don't know. Jesus didn't, none of the 12 are named Joseph. But, you know, Mark might have known him. Peter seems to have known him. Um, this is this is how the story ends up with with Mark. That there were there were these two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother mother Joseph. The person might have said, you know, we had Mary Magdalene, Mary Joseph's mother, and there were some others, but but those two. And so he put those two names down. We just how can we be sure about anything like that? But no, I don't think she's Mary's mother. Mary's mother. Jesus' mother, Mary, is at the cross, but we learned that from a different gospel. Maybe from this one. I, I get confused. Um, we, we would have to, have, to, have to look back to see if Mary, the mother of Jesus, is listed among the women at the cross. But we know from at least one of the gospel that she is, because that's where, in John's gospel, she is entrusted to... John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is entrusted to Mary. She is your mother. She is your son. It's a very touching moment, trying on Jesus' part to see that both of them are taken care of. And the early church tradition is they, they, they stayed together and that they ended up after some years in Ephesus, in a little house up in the hillsides above the city of Ephesus. Yeah, Linda says, that's why we were confused. We're all confused. Already know what's coming or going, but there are lots of Marys. And there are lots of Marys. There was this young, I think she was a French uh, uh, archaeologist, a young woman who went, did this incredible project of going through every occurrence of every name in the 200 years before and 200 years after Jesus, finding them in writings, tax rolls, um, carved on the end of bone boxes, wherever she could figure out how to find names, and she started counting them all. And there just there were so many Marys, lots of Jesuses, lots of Johns. Yep. So, well, maybe, I mean, Linda speculated that maybe in their culture, mothers and wives would not be the ones to prepare their loved ones' bodies. I think because they're not listed doesn't, we don't have to, we shouldn't assume they're not there. Because we know it's a little bit, it's a larger group from the other Gospels. So the Gospel writer is just not interested in providing every detail to us. Remember, these, these Gospels are not, they're, none of them are journalistic accounts. They're all proclamations of the good news. Even Luke, who's writing, he says, I'm writing, I'm setting out an orderly account. They, they didn't have journalistic accounts then as we do now. Um, 
they didn't have biographies then as we do now. It was just, it's a different world. It's a different world. And these are, the Gospels are all proclamations of the good news. And yes, it is, it's helpful to, to bring the Gospels together and get a fuller account. But each Gospel is a different portrait. Each Gospel wants to emphasize different things. And we'll see in a second um, a big question about how Mark chooses to end his Gospel, which is not like the other ones. Okay? All right. Let's see if I'm missing any. All right. So... Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over. Okay. Now, that's that's on Saturday evening. Mary Magdalene. Mary. Now it's the mother of James. Now that could be the way he's referring to Jesus' mother because Jesus we know has a half-brother named James. Is it? Because there's a lot of Jameses. <laughs> so, but maybe not. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Just like I explained. So, so these three named women, and maybe others, are coming to the tomb because they want to put these... Um, these aromatic spices around Jesus to help with the smell. And again, it is just the way that they anointed for burial. These, the, these are their burial rituals. And the women want to tend Jesus' body and make sure that Jesus, this devote, this, their, their, their teacher, their rabbi, whom they had followed and encouraged and supported, that, that even in death, they were caring for him. So, verse 2, very early, on the first day of the week, okay, this would be early on Sunday morning. Early on Sunday morning. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, because they're going to get there as quickly as they can, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Well, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Which, since at least a couple of them, maybe more of them, who can say, saw where he was buried, it might be a pretty hefty stone, because Joseph had money. So it might be a pretty fancy tomb and a pretty big rolling stone and it's sometimes sometimes they had levers that would be used to roll the stone away and so it's a very practical question you know the women are thinking of themselves well we're going to have to get this big stone out of the way and depending on how the tomb was constructed there might not be lots of room to walk to work to get the tomb out of the way so it's just kind of a practical question verse 4 but when they looked up at the tomb, out of their, you know, talking amongst themselves, they saw that the stone, that's the round stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, what do you think their first thought is? 
at that moment. You know, if we were with them, our eyes would look up, we would see that the stone had been rolled away. What would we think had happened? We would think that somebody come in and stolen Jesus' body. An animal's not going to move that stone out of the way. We would think that, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. That Jesus is, that somebody, some opponent, had, um, the Pharisees, the priests, the Romans had come in and stolen Jesus' body away. It's all they, it's all they, that's what anybody would think. Well, in verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, sitting on the right side. That's such an interesting detail, isn't it? Sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Okay, alarmed. They don't run screaming. So they go into the tomb, and they look to their right, and there is a young man sitting there on something in this, basically like a cave, dressed in white. Now, who is this young man? You and I know it's an angel. Does, he, the, does this young man have wings? No. They just think it's like, what are you doing here? As well as thinking about, well, like, why are you dressed in white? But anyway, what are you doing here? Who are you? Well, they wouldn't recognize him. And he says to them, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Standard language out of an angel's mouth. Because this is, this is a, it hasn't occurred many times like this in human history, right? At least in biblical history. He says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Jesus of Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. He has risen. He has been resurrected. Now let's talk about that for a minute. Resurrection is not what happens to Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus is dead, but Lazarus is merely brought back to his old life, where he will go on and age and die. A second time, actually. Like someone who is resuscitated off on an operating table someone who dies who drowns in cold water but they're able to revive him because the water was so cold which is the phenomenon I hear about over and over so um, he has risen he is not here it's he has risen such important words you know we could talk about the um, the deep significance of this. Jesus came saying the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. That's where the gospel begins. Those are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel. And now he has been crucified, he has died, and now he 
is risen. This is the mark of the coming of the kingdom of God. Not the only one, but the big one. The big one. He is risen. He did not simply die a failed would-be Messiah on a Roman cross. He has been resurrected. And when you look back over Jesus' statements and his actions and his ministry, everything has to be seen in that light. Everything has to be taken seriously. Everything has to be taken as, 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 a, as a true statement. He is risen. He is resurrected. Yes, the, the great day of the Lord has arrived in Jesus because resurrection is the mark of it. This is what Paul worked out. Maybe others besides Paul, but all we have are Paul's writings um, in the years following all this. He is the one who works out that Jesus is the first in this great resurrection harvest. All the rest will follow. But the Jewish expectation hadn't really changed. It was just taking a very long time to get from the first person resurrected, Jesus, to the second person resurrected. And we're still waiting. But it's still only 2,000 years, which in the scheme of things is not very long. I saw on, where was it? Some weather, something on the news that, you know, the Milky Way, and our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are going to collide in four or five billion years. So I'm not too worried about that myself. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? It's right there. You saw it. It's empty now. He's risen. This the the best part of this story is happening now. Really? So he says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee, into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the angel commissions the women to go carry this good news. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel give us, gives these women those words, which makes the women... What? <laughs> it makes the women the first apostles. And apostle, the word apostle merely means one who is sent forth. So they're, they're the first apostle. The, they are the ones to whom this remarkable news is entrusted. And they are going to go carry this to Peter and the men. But it's to the women that it is entrusted. And it's, there's great irony there because this is a culture in which women could not even be witnesses in a Hebrew law court. They weren't viewed as reliable. In fact, one of the evidences for the truth of these accounts in the Gospels is that in all four Gospels, it is women who find the empty tomb. Because if you were going to create this story and you wanted to convince people, you would not have women find the empty tomb because they weren't seen as good witnesses. So the irony is that they're God's choice. You see? They're God's choice. They come to the tomb on, on Sunday morning 
the angel is there waiting for them. The angel knows full well who's going to be there. It doesn't even take supernatural abilities to know that it's going to be women who are going to come to the tomb on Sunday morning and finish the work because the men were either hiding on Friday and are sure not going to come out of hiding now, or two, the men would leave this kind of work to the women. So God's first apostles, with the good news of Jesus, are these women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, whoever else is in this group that has gone there on Sunday morning. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, Jesus' disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Remember, they, they all scoffed at that stuff. They couldn't con contemplate him running into trouble in Jerusalem, getting arrested, getting tried, getting crucified. Jesus had to turn to Peter and say, Get behind me, Satan. Peter just couldn't get it. None of them could get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't... They, they had such a set notion in their head of who the Messiah had to be, coming in power and might and wonder and glory with, I don't know what, clouds and lightning and whatever else, that they didn't, they, they didn't, they didn't trust Jesus. They didn't really have enough faith in him and his word and now it's Caesar's simple instructions, just like he told you. Tell them just like he told you. Go into Galilee, right? He's he'll, he'll be there. And then for the subsequent six weeks or so, Jesus appears to various people at various times and places. The resurrection accounts, you know, if you were to sit down, it's like 11 or 12 of them, different encounters with Jesus. They're, they're not... They're not filled with theological explanation. They don't they don't tie all the loose ends together. They just tell you what people saw and what they heard. What they saw and what they heard and what they experienced in Jesus. So just as the Gospel of Mark began, the very first person is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, right? Here it is. Good news. He is risen. It's the best news possible. It's still the best news possible. I was asked, I got an email from somebody over the weekend. Well, yeah, maybe after after yesterday's sermon. Um, he wanted to, to ask me a question or two. And, and The resurrection is the best news possible because if Jesus had simply died, another failed would-be Messiah on the cross, all of his teachings and all the rest, it would have come to nothing. We don't, we don't need a, another teacher. What we need is a savior. We need someone who can do and be for us what we're unwilling to do and be for ourselves which is faithful and just and merciful and loving and kind and patient every moment of every day. 
And that's who Jesus was and is, that one faithful Jew. So he is risen. Gosh, so much packed into three words. He has risen. He is not here. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Well, and so we come to the last verse of Mark's Gospel. Maybe. Trembling and bewildered. Both of those make sense to me. Trembling and bewildered. It's like they have they have been to Mount Sinai. <laughs> right at the top. Not down at the bottom, at the top where God is. Right? They're, they're awestruck, trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well... After all of this, is that how it ends? These failed apostles? If that's where it ended, they would be failed apostles. The angel said, go, tell them, tell them, tell them. Go tell it on the mountain or whatever it might be. Go tell them, tell them. But in verse 8, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I know we could talk about Matthew and Luke and John and those we see much more and we see that that isn't where it ended, obviously. We're Christians ourselves here 2,000 years later. So obviously it didn't end here. The women did go to see Peter and the rest, okay? But does Mark end his gospel here? That's the question. That's the question. Now, in your Bibles... There are two endings offered to you, right? So one is this much shorter one from 9 to 20. In the NIV, do they only print the one? That's what mine has. Let me open my trusty NRSV here beside me. I should have. Most Bibles, a lot of them will print two endings. Two competing endings of Mark. This is an NIV study Bible, and for what I can see, they only have the one. So if I go to my NRSV and go to the end of it, because they're, they're typically known as the shorter ending of Mark and the longer ending of Mark. So, um, yeah. I, if I hold it up the camera, you're not going to see it. We'll do something fun here. I don't know. Maybe you can see that for a second there. There is a shorter ending, and then there is a longer ending. Shorter ending, longer ending. You could look at, the, at, at your Bibles might have shorter ending they, and longer ending. That's the tradition. As you have a shorter ending. Here, I'll read you the shorter ending, okay, in the NRSV. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west a sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation, period. That's pretty short. The longer ending 
is the one who had that has snake handling and stuff in it. So what gives? What gives? Well, there's one thing we know. Neither the shorter ending, which I just read, or the longer one, which involves the snake handling and stuff, is genuine. They all come later. We have manuscripts from the, the earliest manuscripts we have lacked them. And then you see these endings emerged, tacked on to the end of the Gospel of Mark. So why, why did people want to write something and tack it onto the end of the Mark, like with Scotch tape? Why did they do that? Because I think people are, you get to verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Really? So people people wrote endings. I bet there were more than two endings suggested later for the Gospel of Mark. And there are scholars who make the case for number eight having been the last verse, but I don't buy that. After all of this, a gospel that begins the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the only thing in it about resurrection is he has risen, that's it, period, paragraph, and the women go afraid and then won't tell anybody about it? Nah. I mean, I, I, just, don't, I just don't think that's how people are. I don't think Mark would have put his pen down then. And the, the arguments scholars make in favor of that, I just find unpersuasive. I think what happened, and what many scholars think what happened, is that the original ending was lost. In the early years, it was just lost. Mark wrote it, maybe on a, you know some last page, and it was just lost and never found. And so other endings, the shorter ending, the longer ending, were written, stitched on, because people found the verse eight ending so un, unsatisfying. But I don't know, I think this, I'm kind of a simplest explanation kind of guy, the simplest explanation that explains the most data. It was just lost. You know, it's 2,000 years ago. It was just lost, and there was, once it was lost, there was no getting it back. And nobody has digital copies or backups or anything like that. It might have been, it, it might have been the page of the original manuscript was lost. Who could say? We have no, we have no clue. But I personally don't think it ends at verse 8. I don't think Mark had reason to end it with the women being these failed apostles, so don't say anything to anyone. And the only other thing I'll point out, well, if you have your Bible in front of you, you probably have the longer ending. Look at verse 18. Okay, so the, well, look at 17. These will be signs, will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will put their hands on sick people and they will get well. 
that is where snake handling comes from. Like up in Appalachia, you've probably heard about the snake handlers up there. And they, they, they hold the snakes and, and, and so forth, these poisonous snakes, um, because they believe in Jesus and the snakes can't kill them. There are fewer snake handlers now than there once were. So, but no, the longer ending is definitely just not it. It's just not. So, there we go. That's Mark's Gospel. It kind of leaves you in the end. If you do it this way, we come all the way to the end, and you get get to the last piece, and you get to verse 8, and that's where you are. It's, it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit deflating. That's why usually on Easter we might use part of Mark 16, but we'll always have something else besides Mark 16, 1 to 8. Right, so Mona says her NIV, NIV has both. Well, this particular one, this NIV study Bible, um, only has the longer, not the shorter. So in any event, my friends, isn't that something? Just lost. Many things from the ancient world were lost. The whole, the giant, the enormous library of Alexandria burned to the ground. What would we know about that world if that library had survived through time and been taken up by the medieval scholars and stuff and studied? Um, we know, let me give you an example. We know that a man named Papias, early in the second century, wrote a five-volume story of Jesus and the early church. Five volumes. It was lost, gone, didn't survive. What do we have of it? We have quotations and other writings, basically. That's all we have of it. Um, enough to be very intriguing and interesting but most of what, you know, that it's why people will say, well, you know, the archaeologists haven't proved this and that and this and that. When you're working in a world from 2,000 years ago, you're not going to find most of it. You're not going to find anything that was written unless it was written on wood or clay or somehow in like the Dead Sea Scrolls that are written on papyrus but were then put inside jars. This is a reminder. <laughs> this is a reminder. Yeah, that's Alexa keeping me company. So, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls, how were those preserved? This well, is a reminder. oh goodness gracious, that's crazy. This is a reminder. How, how could she have so many reminders? Anyway, Patty's away. So they take the jars, and so they open the jars, and they put these parchment scrolls in. Not par they're not parchment. They're papyrus. Put them in there, sealed the things up, and put them like in the driest place in the world. Every reason they would that they would be okay. And even with that, most of them are unreadable. They have to use special photographic techniques with cameras and stuff because they all, all end up kind of black and when you have a Dead Sea Scroll that still looks something like a scroll it's no wonder the, the, the nation of Israel is so protective of them and that the scholars fight over them and so forth because wow um, 
there was a discovery of ancient writings found at a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi after about maybe 40, 1945 or so. Just, it's basically an old dump. But being an old dump, there was a lot of stuff piled up there. And so some of that stuff, when you got down and through layers of it, survived. Um, including a lot of, of papyrus writings of Gnostic Gospels and that sort of thing from after the days of, uh, of Jesus. But it's, it's not a surprise the ending was lost. But sad to me. Uh, but that's my guess. So, my friends, <laughs> yes, thank you, Susan. Yes, Alexa, stop. I guess, you know, she would say, come on. This is a guy I'm talking to. I do have to tell him four times. So Carl, can I says, Carl has a new American standard and it has a much longer version. Well, there we go. I didn't even know there was actually printed ever a third version other than the short one and then the longer one, which is basically 9 to 20 verses. About, how long is that? About 11 verses. But I'm sure it does. So, but, but we know that all of those came later. I read a long scholarly article on this about 10 years ago, and they went through it in pain, painstaking de detail about what had been found and what hadn't been found. And they said, look, we, we know they're there. They all just come from later. The earliest manuscripts of Mark simply don't have them, which tell you that they were, you know, tacked on later. So, anything else, my friends? Anything else? What's been... It's been wonderful reading through the Gospel of Mark with you. And ironically, though we've been in it 21 or 22 weeks, it's very short. You know, you can read it easily in one sitting without feeling rushed, because you don't want to feel rushed. You could read it aloud in probably less than an hour and a half. So I, I invite you to every now and then pull out Mark and treat it as a whole piece of writing and just kind of sit down and, and hear it. Maybe imagining you're hearing it delivered by Peter, which is what happened one time at St. Andrew. Well, it wasn't by Peter. But one time at St. Andrew, an actor came who performed the Gospel of Mark, by which I mean he had memorized the Gospel of Mark and he performed the Gospel of Mark. He just... Um, delivered the entire Gospel of Mark from beginning to end. And it was very moving and very powerful because the whole story was there. And just those, I think it took maybe an hour and, and 20 minutes to do that. You can experience something like that at home if you rent the movie, The Gospel of John, from 20 plus years ago in which all of the narration, all of the dialogue is simply the Gospel of John from beginning to end. Nothing missing, nothing added. I think they used the Good News Bible for that because the English is a little bit easier than, than some, but 
it's very powerful kind of for that reason because they I mean they act it's it has actors and all that kind of stuff in it but all of the words all of the narration um, are directly just verse one all the way through and it takes John's gospel is much longer it takes like plus it's a movie so it's about three and a half hours okay so yeah, see, Susan remembers. I can't remember his name. He does a lot of C.S. Lewis things, too. But in any event. So when we come together next week, Patty will be back. And we will undertake the Book of Esther. Great story. And we'll be in the Old Testament. We'll be in... It's set in the community of Jews who stay in what becomes Persia and do not return to Jerusalem. So there, there, a large number of Jews who were exiled to Babylon returned to Jerusalem over a long period of time. But then there's a community of Jews who did not. And this is set amongst that community living within the larger Persian Empire, which supplanted the Babylonian Empire. So we'll do that next week. Same time, same place. Okay, my friends, will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are so grateful to have had the opportunity to, to read through and talk about Mark's gospel in this way, just sort of verse by verse, from the very first verse with the beginning of the good news to the end with the resurrection. Um, let it be a good foundation for us. Let Help us to come back to it again um, from time to time and, and read it in big pieces or in whole from beginning to end um, rather than just a verse here and a verse there that we can so easily fall into. Um, you've given us these scriptures so that we might become better disciples of yours, better equipped better equipped to be witnesses to you, to make new disciples, and teach people who about who you are and how to live in your way. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, everybody. Adios. Adios.